Amen. Well, what a, a privilege it is to worship our King. Amen. Can we give our worship team a round of applause? Yeah. They always do such a great um, job of leading us in the singing of praises, the Christ-centered songs. And so what a, what a privilege it is to be able to worship our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Hey, I would be remiss, church, if I lost this opportunity to uh, be able to just express to you our heartfelt gratitude on behalf of myself and my dear family for just this year uh, taking us as part of the Compass Bible Church family. So we are so grateful to you for your love, for your service, for your kindness, for your sweet disposition toward our family. We want you to know that we're also just so blessed to be a part of a church with such a great pastoral staff, beginning with Pastor Mike and his dear wife, Carlin, who supports him so well. We want you to know that we're just so grateful to uh, just be loved on by you and to be a part of a group of men like that who love you, who have kind intentions toward you, who desire your sanctification and that you will be well prepared to see King Jesus in the future. We are so grateful. And because Pastor Mike is gone, he's given me the opportunity to minister the Word of God this weekend, and he's given me a couple of hours for this particular sermon. Just kidding. So let's get into Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42 is our passage for this late morning. So open your Bibles there. And I want to begin by reading from the English Standard Version. Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. And always remember that when we open up the Bible, this is God's authoritative, inerrant, infallible word. Amen? Amen. So let me read it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, I know that I don't have to convince you or persuade you of the fact that we live in a very hectic, busy world, don't we? I know you feel it. I feel it. We're living in a very fast-paced, media-saturated, technology-driven culture. In fact, the word on the street is that the, the next edition of the Apple iPhone 14 is coming out and releasing this September. How many of you knew that? Good, I'm so encouraged already. <laughs> but I can't believe it. I mean, didn't the, the previous edition just come out? I mean, who can keep up with these devices, right? Who can keep up with the price of these devices? And who knows, with everything that they're able to do for you, maybe future iPhones will even cook for some of you ladies, right? Maybe they'll be able to do some housework for you. That would be nice, right? You never know. Now, I know that we need to be careful, of course, with using that example even of technology because 
Technology, like anything else that causes us to be busy about the wrong kinds of things and causes us to be distracted, those aren't the core of the problem. Those are not the root of the issue. In fact, we now can leverage technology to use that example for the purpose of spreading the gospel all over the world. We know that. That's a good thing. And Compass Bible Church does a great job at uh, uh, sending out the word of truth through technological means now, and that's a, a great way to go. But brethren, isn't it true that like with anything, not just technology, if you and I are not careful, it's easy for us to allow so much in our world to distract us, to become busy about the wrong kinds of things. It isn't wrong to be busy. We can be busy about the right things and about kingdom realities but we can also be busy doing the wrong things in life. And so many of these things have the function of causing us to, to be distracted. We become preoccupied with, with secondary peripheral matters. We are busy people. And many things compete for our attention. In fact, isn't it true that even, even good things, even profitable things, even useful things in your life can compete for your devotion and for your affections. Certain things can even, that are good things, can overshadow what's most important and what matters most in life, so that eventually the main thing ceases to be the main thing, so that eventually what should be central takes the back seat in our hearts and in our lives and the way that we use our time and the way that we use our resources. This can happen to any of us. And that's why I think that this particular passage here in Luke is so crucial for you and I to consider and to reflect upon and to apply its principles that we're going to see this morning. On the one hand, it's a short little account. And because of that, you can't help if you're a, a careful reader of God's Word and a careful reader of the Gospel of Luke, why it's even here, as brief as it is. I mean, at first glance, it seems somewhat random, somewhat inconsequential to the overall narrative of the Gospel of Luke until you realize what is happening at this stage in the Gospel of Luke as it pertains to the ministry of our Lord. You see, Jesus has grown in popularity. Masses of people are after Jesus. Many people are flocking to Jesus. People are enamored by Jesus, but they're not following after Jesus because they love him because they believe that he's the Messiah, because they believe that he can save them from their sins, they're following after him because of the stuff that they can get from him. They love the gifts of Jesus, from Jesus, but they don't love the giver of those gifts. And so I submit to you that a big part of the reason why Luke inserts this short account here in particular is to provide us with an example of the type of heartfelt response that we should have toward the king of the universe. Now Luke unpacks this for us by means of providing two portraits of two different kinds of responses to Jesus, and then we're provided with the primary lesson to be gleaned from the very mouth of our Lord Jesus. Now let me say this before we begin looking at this passage. In some ways, as we look at this little account, there's much here that may seem so obvious to us, but I exhort you, brother and sister, not to tune this message out today. 
And not to be thinking about who else needs to listen to this message that you wish that they were here or that they're live streaming. This is God speaking to you through this particular text this morning. It's crucial that you will pay attention to it. It was the legendary Hall of Fame coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, who on the first day of training camp one year, after the Green Bay Packers had lost a Super Bowl the previous year, got up on a chair and he basically held a pigskin on, on his right hand, a football. And he said to his team, gentlemen, this is a football. What was his point? Let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to the elemental things. Let's get back to the ABCs because everything flows from there, right? In a sense, we need to do that as Christians sometimes. Getting back to the basics. And that's why it's so important for us to pay attention to what Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have to say to us in this particular text. And as we walk through this passage, what I want you to ask yourself is this. Which of these portraits best describes me in the present? What I want you to do is put your heart on the table, so to speak, for God to do spiritual open heart surgery upon you. What is the state of your heart before Christ presently? Are you fully engaged with Jesus, your Savior, today, brother and sister? Today. Not a year ago. Not two years ago before COVID. For some of you who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, not five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. What is the state of your heart toward Jesus, your Savior, today, as you listen to this message, is your heart fully engaged with Jesus? Or have you grown cold, callous, indifferent toward Him? This may be happening even in the midst of you doing profitable things, even good things. And so we have a need this morning to ask, have God examine our hearts and to evaluate where we've gone wrong and maybe lost our way in our Christian walk. And so let's begin by looking at this first portrait. Ready? And what we want to learn from this first portrait here is that we must look to, if you're taking notes, emulate undistracted devotion. Emulate undistracted devotion. As you navigate our world with all of its distractions, how important it is for us to emulate undistracted devotion. Someone has said that example is the most powerful rhetoric, meaning that examples are some of the most powerful persuasive tools that God uses in our lives to effect change for His glory and for the good of others. Well, right off the bat, we have a, a powerful, compelling example here of undistracted devotion. Look at verse 38. It says that as they went on their way, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus entered a village. Now we know that this village is a place called Bethany. Because according to John chapter 11 and chapter 12, this will be the same village where Jesus will heal a man who you're quite familiar with by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of these two women that we're going to see in our narrative and so from what we know, this is the Lord's first interaction with this particular family, but the family will become very dear to Jesus. 
And so Jesus and his disciples are traveling along. And verse 38 says that a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Was this visit planned? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Was this visit by invitation? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But as you can imagine, Martha must have been beside herself, super excited to host Jesus and his disciples in her home. I mean, this is the famous Jesus. They've heard of his great teaching with authority, not as the rest of the scribes and Pharisees. They've heard of Jesus' unrivaled power. This is the Jesus who turns water into wine. This is the Jesus who calms the seas and the storms. This is the Jesus who heals people definitively and completely. No therapy sessions, complete healings. This is the Jesus who casts out powerful demons who cry out, You are the Son of the living God. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? So they are excited. You can imagine Martha's excitement here with the famous Christ. Now notice how quickly Luke introduces us, however, to the second most important character in the story, with the first one being Jesus, of course. Verse 39 says that Martha had a sister called Mary. Not much is said about Mary here. Most likely she was the younger of the two. The details are not really that pertinent. Rather, what Luke wants you and I to know is what Mary is doing here. The focus is upon Mary's actions. You know what this is like? This is like when you're watching a movie and the camera all of a sudden zooms in in one of the scenes in that movie upon the face or upon the actions of that particular character in that movie. That's what this is like here. The camera zooms in on the actions of this little lady named Mary. And what's she doing? Verse 39. It says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Interesting. Jesus had transitioned here to formal teaching as a rabbi would. And Mary is all ears, listening to, to Jesus. You say, Pastor Campus, what's the big deal? I mean, in this auditorium, we have a bunch of people who are listening to the Word of God, and there are ladies amongst us and all of that. I mean, that was pretty common even in those days, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. Not in those days for a woman in this particular manner here. In fact, in that culture... What Mary is doing would have been considered unconventional, uncommon behavior. To use lingo from our day, her actions would have been considered by some of the more extreme rabbis of the day as not very ladylike, perhaps even shameful. Throwing on top of that, that many rabbis looked down on women. They considered them as less than men, even no better than animals. And in a setting like this, if a woman wanted to listen to formal instruction by a rabbi, it was preferable for her to sit in the back of the room so as not to attract attention to herself. And yet notice, verse 39, what's Mary doing? She was sitting at the Lord's feet, sat at the Lord's feet, and listened to His teaching. Brothers and sisters, this woman's posture is humble and teachable. Teachable, isn't it? This woman's attitude is one of honor and reverence for the teaching of Jesus. Her faculties are fully engaged. The senses that she was continually listening to his word, this woman was hanging on his every word, undistracted, attentive. 
This is at a time when, when masses are flocking to Jesus to see what they can get from him. In the midst of that particular culture, this little lady simply can't get enough of Jesus himself. She's captivated by him. She's enthralled by Jesus. She cherishes Jesus. Nothing is more important to Mary in this particular moment than being with Jesus. She's being ministered to by Christ, not the other way around. There's a difference, right? She's being ministered to by Jesus. We would do well to pause at this moment and ask ourselves the obvious question. Do we make ourselves readily available for Christ to minister to us like this? You say, well, Pastor Campus, it's different. Jesus, is, Jesus isn't here with us in the same way, physically, visibly, face to face. And you're right, but doesn't he speak to us to, through his word? Didn't he, doesn't he manifest his presence to us through the Holy Spirit, like he said in the upper room to his disciples then, and by implication and application, future disciples? That the, I'm going to be leaving you, he said to his disciples in the upper room, but the Father will send the Holy Spirit. He's going to illumine you. He's going to teach you. He's going to be with you. He's going to comfort you, encourage you. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have spoken to you. And so he's with us by the Holy Spirit he speaks to us privately as we read His Word. He speaks to us collectively and corporately as we sit under the teaching and preaching of God's Word, not only in the, on the weekends, but also in our shepherding hubs and our sub-congregations during the week as well. And so, as you read and hear His Word, is your heart attentive to the Word of Christ? Are you engaged in this manner? Are you practicing what Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says? That we as believers ought to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And the idea there is that, that the word of Christ is to make its home in our hearts. It shouldn't just be visiting, not just passing by, but the word of Christ is to, is to saturate our hearts, permeate our whole being as believers. Would that describe you? Or are you distracted? Are you divided in your affections like the double-minded person that James describes, the dipsukos person, the two-souled person, the split person, the divided person who is distracted, who professes one thing with their lips but lives quite differently and feels very differently on the inside? Is that you? Are you the double-minded person, the divided person, passively listening Perhaps even thinking right now about what you're going to eat later on. Oh, who, is, who, is, who else is around that needs to listen to this? No, this is personal toward you. We need to personalize the teaching of the Word of God, right? Right now, God is speaking to you directly. God has a message for you. Are you attentive to the ministry of the Word? Let me dig a little deeper. As you do your daily Bible reading, are you tuned in to what you're reading? Or are you just checking off a box, going through the motions, sort of in a robotic, mechanical kind of way? See, brethren, how often we forget that when we approach the Word of God, we are spending time with a, with a person. We're coming to have sweet and intimate time with Jesus, the lover of our souls, to know Him be with him, 
We don't just come to be informed intellectually. We come so that our hearts might be primed and warmed all the more to an undistracted devotion to Jesus. So may I ask you, what's distracting you today from this type of devotion with Christ? Well, there are many distractions, right, that we face and encounter in our lives. What's hindering you? Perhaps it's a, it's a besetting sin. Perhaps it's a, a prevailing sin. Pastor Kempis, I want to do what is right. Pastor Kempis, I want to love God. I want to obey in this particular area, but I can't seem to overcome that particular sin in my life. Listen, brother or sister, confess that to the Lord. Nothing will deflate your spiritual walk than patterns of known, conscious, unrepentant sin in your life. What does 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9 say to believers? That we, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar, we lie, right? And we don't practice the truth. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, as Christians, we don't cease to confess our sins because we're in Christ now. Rather, we confess our sins to God on a daily basis because the answer will always be yes to your confession and to your ask of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's so encouraging, isn't it? That's good news for the believer. What about a bad relationship? Is that what's distracting you? Maybe you've put somebody in a place in your heart that you shouldn't, that doesn't belong to them. Listen, don't make that person or any person your idol. Don't put anyone, especially for those of you who are single, young and older, don't put anyone in the place that belongs to Christ alone. Christ is to be primary, not anything or anyone in your life. No one will satisfy the place that Jesus can satisfy in your heart. No one will satisfy your longing soul, but Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus will have no rivals. He wants your wholehearted devotion. Now, perhaps for others of us, it's not so much that we don't want to spend undistracted time with the Lord. Maybe it's that we, we feel guilty. Maybe it's that we are continually in the state of feeling a sense of unworthiness to come to Jesus. My sin is too great. I know I'm a believer, but I don't know why God would even continue to love me as I continue to struggle with these weaknesses. Some of us can struggle with that even as believers. Now look, if you're not a Christian, fact is, you are unworthy. You are unworthy. This is what makes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ so wondrous and so marvelous, isn't it? That Christ Jesus... The Son of God, the worthy one, the only worthy one, came into the world to live the perfect, sinless life that you should live but cannot live. He went to the cross to die for sinners who deserve hell and condemnation, bearing our sins, bearing our guilt, bearing the punishment for our sins. And he died, but death couldn't hold him down, right? Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and that by believing, by turning from your sins and trusting in this Jesus, the worthy one, you can draw near to the throne of grace. You can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to your maker through faith in Jesus. You can receive eternal life. 
You can look forward to the day where you will see Jesus face to face according to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. And so recognize that you are unworthy if you are not in Christ. But through Christ, by faith alone, you may come and be with him. Now, if you are a believer, may I remind you, Christian, that even now as Christians, we don't come to spend time with Christ because we are worthy even now, but because he is worthy. Amen? We come to Jesus not because we are there to add something to him or contribute something to Jesus. We come to Jesus because he fulfills us. He completes us, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, because he is enough in our lives, because he is sufficient. And we don't come to Christ because he needs us, but because we desperately need him. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. Let that sink in for a minute. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. Isn't that why he came into the world to deal with the problem of our sin? That by faith we can be reconciled to God through faith in him and have fellowship and communion with the God of the universe? He doesn't need us, but he wants us. Oh, let that fuel you into a deeper, more intimate, undistracted devotion with Jesus. So please don't miss this. Mary's greatest need is that Christ may minister to her first and foremost, not the other, other way around, because everything will flow from that relationship, right? Now watch this. Mary's undistracted devotion becomes even more evident as we see the stark contrast in verse 40. And what we learn from this second portrait is that we must be willing, secondly, to evaluate misplaced priorities. As we navigate our world with all of its distractions and preoccupations that are secondary and peripheral, even those that are good at first glance, we must learn to evaluate misplaced priorities. You see, so often the problem is not that everything that we're doing is wrong or, or sinful. It's that even with our best intentions, good things, useful things, profitable things can become ends in themselves. And we become people who lose sight of the main thing. Other peripheral matters become primary. Other peripheral matters, secondary matters become central in our life. Oh, brethren, how we need to hear this today. Because most of us are more like Martha than we are like Mary. Amen? Well, I guess I'm the only sinner in here, right? Look at verse 40. Here's the contrast. But... Martha, strong opposite, but Martha was distracted with much serving. Time out. Wait a minute. What's wrong with, with, with serving? Aren't we expected to serve? Aren't we supposed to serve? Doesn't 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11 say that as we've been gifted, that we should put our gifts to work and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of, of God? Doesn't it honor the Lord and glorify Him that we serve our brethren for their good and for their benefit out of a heart of love? And doesn't Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, 
say to his disciples who were duking it out continually for the place of prominence in the future kingdom, right, for who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself modeled service, and he said to his disciples, you want to be great? You need to be last of all and servant of all if you want to be great in the kingdom of God. So even Jesus himself spoke of the fact that he was the ultimate servant, and he told his disciples, you want to be great, you must serve one another as well. And so we're commanded to serve and commended for our service. And so what's the problem, Luke? Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Isn't service good and profitable and useful? Of course it is. But you see, we'll, we'll soon see that service in itself is not Martha's core root problem. Furthermore, let's not be so hard on on poor Martha here. I mean, what would you do if someone famous were coming to your house? Let's think about that for a minute. Suppose that for a minute that your favorite movie star were coming over. Hopefully a wholesome movie star. So never mind that example, right? We're not going to be able to find that. What about your favorite sports athlete? What if Clayton Kershaw were... Oh, never mind. We're Angels fans here. Actually, we have some Dodger fans in here, right? So what if your favorite sports athlete were coming over? For me, it would be Clayton Kershaw. He's a brother in Christ, as far as I can see. Or better, what if Pastor Mike were coming over your house? Yikes. Pastor Campus, now you're getting really crazy. Listen, if someone famous were coming over your house, wouldn't you want to be a good host or hostess? Wouldn't you want to be well prepared for that particular person coming over? Of course that you would. You'd start with preparing a a great meal, wouldn't you? Please tell me that you wouldn't serve them mac and cheese. Rice-a-roni, right? Some of you teens want to raise up your hand. No, please. No. No. I suspect that you would cook the best food on the planet for your special guest, and everyone knows that the best food on the planet, the heavenly food, is none other than Mexican food, right? Some of you got your priorities straight. A few of you who didn't clap don't, okay? So we can talk after. Yeah, you'd be cooking the best. You'd be cooking up a storm. You'd make the Mexican carne asada, the grilled steak. You'd make the rockin' pinto beans. You'd throw in the delicious Spanish rice, some homemade tortillas, right? Those always hit home. The chile verde, green salsa, the guacamole and chips. Some of you are getting really hungry and ready to walk out right now, right? Keep your eyes on the spiritual food, brethren, right? Not on the physical. I know I'm not helping you with that. So you'd prepare the best meal for that special person. We can identify with Martha. She wants to do good to Jesus and to the disciples. What about your house? You'd clean that place up so it doesn't look the way it does right now, right? You'd be on your hands and knees, wiping everything down, vacuuming and dusting, washing all the bedding, etc., etc., etc. See, my brethren, we can identify with this lady Martha here. Someone had to do the preparations. Martha seems to be concerned with good things, profitable things, loving things. And with her best intentions, she wants to do well. She wants to be a good 
hostess for Jesus and his disciples. So, again, what's the problem? Look at the text in verse 40. It says there that Martha was what? What, brethren? Distracted. That's a strong word with negative connotations. Distracted. It means she was being dragged away. It means that Martha was being pulled or yanked in a different direction. Question, what was she being dragged away from? Answer, from what should have been at that precise moment her greater priority. And who is that? Her relationship with Jesus. Being ministered to by Jesus rather than the other way around. Because everything, including Martha's service, would flow from that relationship. Boy, please pay attention to this. Because this can so subtly, even imperceptibly happen to any of us, even the most mature among you. On the one hand, we shouldn't run from our God-given responsibilities or God-given duties. If you're hearing from this message, oh, you know what? Pastor Kempis is right. You know, if my heart isn't in this, I'm just going to not serve the Lord. That's not an implication from this text. <clears throat> Wrong answer, right? Wrong implication. Wrong takeaway. If you are a believer this morning, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you've been given a gift set of spiritual gifts and even abilities and experiences that God has given you to use for His glory and the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you are not putting those gifts to use, you are in sin, and you need to repent of your passivity and of your lack of love for God and for your brethren. You should serve. You should be a highly committed participant who is serving at a high level. For the glory of God and the good of your brethren, you should serve. But hear me. On the other hand, be careful that the responsibilities don't become greater than their relationship with Jesus. Or a substitute for their relationship by the grace of God, brother, sister, make it your aim to fulfill your God-given duties in a way where they are fueled by your delight in the Lord. See, Martha's core problem wasn't her activity. It was her misplaced priority, right? It wasn't that her hard work for Jesus and for his disciples was the root problem. It was her worship that was lacking and that was misplaced. And misdirected. What a lesson for us. What a serious reminder that God doesn't just care, brother and sister, that you serve Him. He also cares even more how you serve Him and why you serve Him. He cares about the manner in which you serve Him. He cares about the motive for why you serve Him. Not just that you work, but why you're working for Him. And how you're doing it. It's like telling your kid, right? As parents, we can identify with this on the horizontal level. It's like telling your kid to take out the trash. And they do it. They go out and do it. But the whole time you notice, even though they thought that you didn't notice, they're giving you dirty looks, right? They're whining and complaining about why, why do I have to be the one doing this? What do you say to them as a parent? Oh, son, thank you so much for still taking the trash out. Is that what you say as a parent? Not me. 
Son, the attitude with which you serve and the attitude with which you obey me is more important to me than the action itself. Right? That matters to us as parents on the horizontal level. It's the same with us in our service to God. Brothers and sisters, so often the problem is not with our activity for God, it's with our attitude toward Him. And that's why for me personally, it's helpful to put adjectives and adverbs before terms like obedience and service and duty. I want to be about joyful service, grateful service, loving service, loving obedience, grateful obedience, joyful obedience, worshipful service unto others. That kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? The kind of heart that we should bring. Now watch this. It's good when we see our problem and we're willing to evaluate our priorities and even make the adjustments necessary in life when we recognize where we've gone wrong. That's good and that's profitable. But when we do the opposite, when we don't see our problem, then things can go from bad to worse, and this is what happens with Martha. Things go from bad to worse for her. Not only is she distracted, not only is she having a bad attitude, her attitude is not right here, but now she spirals downward even more, and she responds by striking back for what she perceives to be injustice at the moment in that situation. And of all people, who does she come after? The Lord of the universe. This is outrageous. Verse 40, look there. And she, Martha, went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Whoa. Excuse me? I mean, this is, a, this is one stressed out lady right now. This is audacious. Multiple sins committed here. For one thing, she questions the Lord's character, doesn't she? Do you not care? Of course he does. He loves her. He's kind to her. He's good to her. On top of that, by the way she frames her question and she approaches Jesus, she places doubt on his wisdom and justice, right? It's as if she knows better than Jesus in that moment. And if that wasn't enough... She tries to usurp his authority by ordering Jesus, tell her then to help me. I mean, who's the Lord here? Is it Jesus or is it Martha, right? And then, to top it all off, she even throws her sister under the bus. My sister, wah, 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 my sister has left me to serve alone. By the way, the text doesn't say that Mary hadn't served at all. It simply says that at that moment when Jesus was teaching, she prioritized listening to what Christ had to say. Brethren, you know what had happened to Martha, which happens to all of us to some extent or another? Service had ceased to be a privilege and a blessing to Martha, and it had become a burden. And where did all this begin? Mark it. It began with her losing sight of Christ as her utmost priority. And everything spiraled downward from there. Boy, how many of us can remember this happening to us? Amen? 
We neglect that relationship over time with Christ, and before we know it, we're spiraling downward. It shows itself first and foremost on the vertical level where we begin to question God's love for us, question God's goodness, question why he even allows trials and suffering in our life, losing sight of the fact that James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, that he's using those trials and those sufferings for the sake of growing us in conformity to Jesus and preparing us for that day when we will see our Savior. We forget about all of that on the vertical level. And we continue to spiral downward, and it shows itself on the horizontal level where all of a sudden we're bitter towards others, resentful towards others, unforgiving towards others because they're not doing what we think they ought to be doing in ministry, and then we go on the attack, right? That's what Martha does here. And it can happen to even the most faithful of servants where the privilege and the blessing of ministry becomes a a burden, where our duty before the Lord becomes drudgery instead of delight. And so, as we consider Martha's downward spiraling, do you see why, brethren, it's crucial for us to examine our hearts today? For us to evaluate if there are misplaced priorities in our lives? And so how about it? In the process of of working hard for God, even with your best intentions, have you neglected the worship of God? Is it worshipful work that you're doing? In the process of fulfilling your good and profitable and God-given responsibilities, are you being fueled by your relationship with Christ that you might serve Him with joy and gratitude and out of a heart of love? You see, this passage challenges us to lay our hearts on the table and to evaluate where we've gone wrong, right? And to make the appropriate changes in life. And above all, I think we're challenged that we need to be careful that we've not lost our first love. Paul says to the Corinthians, to believers, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is Paul writing to professing believers in Corinth. Oh, may that not be any of us, brethren, this morning. Well, now that we've seen both portraits, one positive and one negative, What are we to make of all of this? I mean, was this whole account simply the case of a very diligent woman, hardworking woman named Martha in comparison to a very lazy little sister named Mary? Is that all that this thing boils down to? I think, were it not for the direct words of our Lord Jesus next, that some of us might be tempted to conclude something along those lines. But Jesus does in fact speak. And so we must thirdly, if you're taking notes, embrace loving correction. We must embrace loving correction. And keep in mind that this is, this is Jesus' final, authoritative, divine assessment of this particular situation in the home of Mary and Martha. Look at verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Well, you know you're in trouble when Jesus repeats your name, right? Kind of like your parents, Kempis, Kempis. Remember Simon, Simon. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Martha, Martha, you are anxious 
and troubled about many things. Boy, he's so patient and so gracious and so gentle, isn't he? We should learn from this. He's going to correct her, but he's so gentle and gracious. I mean, if it were one of us, we'd be like, Martha, you, you've gone too far, lady. Get off the whammobile, right? Stop complaining. Quit the whining. I'm so thankful that the Lord is not like us. Notice, he graciously exposes her problem. He calls her out. Verse 41, you are anxious and troubled about many things. By the way, did you notice that he does not correct her for for serving? He doesn't correct her for her desire to be well prepared and to work hard for them. Instead, in essence, what he says is, you know what your problem is, Martha? Your attitude is not right. You're anxious. You're stressed out. And your priorities are not straight. You are troubled about many things. you got way too many windows open in that head of yours. You're scattered. You're distracted. You're divided. He lovingly exposes the problem of her attitude. But then, like a good shepherd, notice he applies the healing balm by providing the solution, right? Worried and anxious and troubled about many things. Verse 42, but, but one thing is necessary. One thing is needful. In other words, let's get back to the basics, Martha. You're running around doing many things, scattered in your brain. But Mary has chosen the the good portion which will not be taken away from her. I love that. Hmm. Don't miss this. All of this time, even with good intentions... Martha has been so focused on the physical meal, but Jesus says Mary's been fixed on the greater meal. Remember what Jesus said once to the multitudes who were following after him after he had fed thousands of them? People essentially follow me because you want to eat more. That's why you're following after me. And then John chapter 6, verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, namely Himself, will give to you. John 6, 27. And later He told them who this food was. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Emphatic construction. I myself am the bread of life. I'm the only meal that you need. Only I can satisfy the longing of your soul. I myself am sufficient. I myself am enough. I am the bread of life. Oh, brethren, if we could get this. Listen, everything that you do in the service of God must be fueled by and flow from your relationship with Jesus. You're abiding in Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15? Remember that? Abide in me and I in you. And then later on he said, for apart from me you can do some things. Is that what your ESV says? No, apart from me you can do nothing. Not one thing. So be with me. Remain under me. Fellowship with me. Commune with me. Listen, men, men, you will not be able to shepherd your family. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. Love your children, young and older, and engage them spiritually and shepherd them as you need to if you are not abiding in Christ. Ladies, if you're married with kids, young or older, 
You will not be able to fulfill your God-given responsibility to love your husband and to love your children and to serve them well unless you are clinging to the, to the altar of grace daily. We need this. Your ability as a grandparent, if you're here, because you see this wicked and perverse generation in which we are living and you feel all the more compelled as a grandparent to continue to invest into your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids all the more because of the wickedness of the world that you see around you. Your ability to do that and to invest well is fueled by and flows from you abiding in Christ. Your ability as a single person, young or older, to cultivate Christ-like contentment and to use all the time that you have not being married to, for the service of the Lord flows from and is fueled by your relationship with Jesus, your abiding in Christ. Otherwise, it's impossible to do it for any of these roles, brethren. Your ability to work in a hostile environment, in a secular workforce, as a boss or as a, under a boss who is unjust, where you are bypassed for promotions or whatever, and there's injustice and indifference and all of that, your ability to be faithful in that environment and be on mission for the sake of the Great Commission flows from and is fueled by your abiding in Jesus daily. And Jesus is not to be one of our many priorities. He's to be our supreme priority. Jesus, brethren, doesn't only want our service. What he wants is you. Because if he has you, then loving service must and should follow, naturally and necessarily, in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. We need to have the heart of David. It was David's heart to singularly worship the Lord. Write this down, Psalm 27 and verse 4. He says, one thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek. He says, I'm, I petition for this and I'm pursuing it. I seek it. What is it, David? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In horribly troubling times, David says, in the midst of all of his responsibilities and all of the opposition that that man faced as king of Israel, he says, I long to be with Yahweh my God. I long to behold him. I long to seek his face. That's my heart. This was David's lifeblood, you understand. His supreme priority was to be with the Lord. Paul concurs in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My supreme priority as a Christian, says Paul, is to attain to the prize, and who is the prize? King Jesus is the prize. I give maximum effort toward fixing my eyes on Jesus. Oh, that God may grant us this type of singular focus and healthy fixation upon Jesus. Amen? You know, today there's a, one other reason why I'm very thankful. In about 14 days, my wife Andrea and I are going to be celebrating our 23rd wedding anniversary. Yeah. 
So thankful. It's been a sweet journey. I know some of you have been married even longer than that and double us and all of that. It's been a sweet journey for us, 23 years of marriage. But truth be told, maybe some of you can identify with this. I recall very little about our actual wedding ceremony. How many of you can identify? Good job, man. Good job. If your wife's sitting next to you, you don't want to say, admit to that, right? <laughs> I don't remember much about the decorations. I don't remember very much about the food we served. Obviously, it wasn't the heavenly food. Otherwise, I would remember that detail. <laughs> I don't remember even a whole lot about who was there. All of those details, I'm sure, are important to some extent or another, but, but they're sort of a blur to me now. But there's one moment and one person that I do remember and I've never forgotten. I'll never forget when the background music began. For us, it was Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And all of a sudden, as that background music began to play, all of the people stood up and all eyes were fixed to the back of the room upon the, the bride when the bride appeared. Now, what do you suppose that I was doing at that moment on the stage? Boy, that is a really nice burgundy-colored carpet. Oh, my goodness. Nice chapel that we chose in here, right? Boy, those are some great decorations. Who put together those flower arrangements? Wow. Hey, I didn't know that that person was here or that family was here. Hey, good to see you. Do you guys suppose that that's what I was doing? Oh, no. At that moment, just like everyone else's eyes, my eyes were fixed on the bride, fixed on my wife. Nothing was more important than seeing her and savoring that particular moment when she appeared. Brethren, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says that one day future, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is, Right? One day we anticipate the day when we will see Jesus face to face. People talk about heaven and what heaven's going to be like and all of that. And, and are we going to get rewards? And what are we going to do with our crowns? And are we going to see our loved ones and all of that? People talk about that all the time. You know what is most attractive to me about heaven? I mean, I care about those other things to some extent or another. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Christ. Shouldn't that begin now? Shouldn't our longing and our focus be on Jesus in the here and now, in anticipation and in preparation of seeing our King, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 in the future? It begins now. It begins now. In anticipation of that day when the bride of Christ, the church, will be united to Him corporately and collectively. Brothers and sisters, in the race of the Christian life, in the here and now, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that we need to run the race of the Christian life to, to win. And how do you do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That journey begins now. By the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Or better, keep Christ where He belongs as central in everything that we do. In our hearts, in our actions, in the way that we use our resources, in our priorities, in the way that we use our energy. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful to be a part of a church 
of many highly committed participants rather than passive spectators. We are so grateful to you for the fact that you have moved in us all the more, even during COVID and post-COVID, to be a church that desires to serve one another well. Thank you for that. Help us to do that out of a heart of worship, out of a heart of love for you. Help us to be joyfully serving you aggressively and relentlessly, and to do this all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.